Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. I decided to start Amazing Stories because as a fan, I couldn't find a podcast that was 100% dedicated to sharing stories of adventure, fantasy, the supernatural, and macabre. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy this amazing story. Hello. Turn the lights down, hunker down in an armchair, Stand by for a well-known gothic tale of a murder on Dartmoor inspired by the legend of a supernatural hound. Yes, it's The Hound of the Baskervilles, a concert drama in three parts for actors and orchestra, adapted from the novel by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, with music and words by me, Neil Brand. There's a star cast of actors led by Mark Gatiss as Sherlock Holmes and Sanjeev Bhaskar as Dr Watson, and the BBC Symphony Orchestra is conducted by Timothy Brock. You're about to hear the world premiere, recorded at the Barbican Hall last month. A bit of background here. Concert drama is my term for classic works of literature adapted for actors and orchestra. The music underscores the drama as a continuous soundtrack, providing all the sound effects as well as changes in place and emotional thrust as they happen. The Hound of the Baskervilles is the latest collaboration I've been lucky enough to develop with the BBC Symphony Orchestra. In 2013, it was The Wind in the Willows. The following year, it was A Christmas Carol. The Hound of the Baskervilles is a very different animal. It's dark, mysterious, straying even into the supernatural. It's Sherlock Holmes's deepest immersion in the world of the Gothic, inspired by a conversation Doyle had with his journalist friend Bertram Fletcher Robinson about a ghostly black dog that haunted the Devon countryside. The two men visited Dartmoor in May 1901, taking in the tors and marshes, the abandoned mines, the prehistoric barrows, and the grim prison in Princetown. Doyle must at some stage have decided that the only hero formidable enough to challenge the forces of darkness was his errant detective, whom he'd killed off over the Reichenbach Falls some eight years previously. For me, cutting down the novel to a workable size proved an epic task in itself, but I have stayed true to the text and plotting of the novel, only indulging myself in one or two more modern moments of dialogue and the setting up of one huge twist, which I hope will surprise and delight Holmes fans, as well as ushering in a much-loved character not to be found in the original story. And then there's the musical score. By chance, and to escape from the grim realities of the modern world, I've spent the last three years in both the literary and musical worlds of gothic horror. I've written radio adaptations of stories by M.R. James, also starring Mark Gatiss, and Sheridan Lefanu, and investigated the modernist composers who scored Hammer films for a BBC Radio 4 documentary. This score inhabits those dark realms, influenced by universal horror scores of the 1930s, and the jagged harmonies of 1950s Hammer. I've even included a homage to Hammer maestro James Bernard. Above all, I'm indebted to my friend, mentor, orchestrator and conductor Timothy Brock, who has created a profound and beautiful soundscape, the perfect environment in which to let loose the great detective and his most terrifying adversary. And what will you hear? A series of linked scenes with Mark Gatiss as Sherlock Holmes, and Sanjeev Bhaskar as Dr. Watson, plus five other actors taking on the many other roles and narrating. Ewan Bailey as Barrymore, Claire Corbett as Mrs. Barrymore, Sam Dale as Dr. Mortimer, Ryan Early as Henry Baskerville, and Carl Prekop 
as Stapleton and Selden. And so to part one. Holmes and Watson hear the legend of the Hound of the Baskervilles from Dr Mortimer, a country doctor visiting London from Devon. Recorded at the Barbican Hall in London last month, the BBC Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Timothy Brock, this is the Hound of the Baskervilles. The Legend of the Hound of the Baskervilles. Know then that in the time of the Great Rebellion, this manor of Baskerville was held by Hugo of that name. Nor could it be gainsaid that he was a most wild, profane, and godless man. It chanced that this Hugo came to love the daughter of a yeoman who held lands near the Baskerville estate. One Michaelmas, with five or six of his idle and wicked companions, he stole down upon the farm and carried off the maiden. When they had brought her to the hall, she was placed in an upper chamber, while Hugo and his friends sat down to a long carouse, as was their nightly custom. At last, in the stress of her fear, she did that which might have daunted the bravest man. For by the aid of the growth of ivy which covers the south wall, she climbed down from under the eaves and so homeward across the moor. When Hugo found the cage empty and the bird escaped, he became as one that hath a devil. Rushing down the stairs into the dining hall, he sprang upon the great table, flagons and trenchers flying before him. And he cried aloud before all the company that he would that very night render his body and soul to the powers of evil if he might but overtake the wench. Hugo ran from the house, crying to his grooms that they should settle his mare and unkennel the pack. And giving the hounds a kerchief of the maids, he swung them to the line and so off full cry in the moonlight over the moor. The revellers, 13 in number, took horse and started in pursuit. The moon shone clear above them and they rode swiftly abreast. They had gone a mile or two when they passed one of the night shepherds upon the moorlands and they cried to him to know if he had seen the hunt. I have seen more than that, said he, for Hugo Baskerville passed me upon his black mare, and there ran mute behind him such a hound of hell as God forbid should ever be at my heels. They passed on, but soon their skins turned cold, for there came a galloping across the moor, and the black mare dabbled with white froth went past with trailing bridle and empty saddle. They coaxed their mares down the dip to where it opened into a broad space in which stood two of those great stones which were set by forgotten peoples in the days of old. The moon was shining bright upon the clearing and there in the centre lay the unhappy maid where she had fallen, dead of fear 
and of fatigue. But it was not the sight of her body, nor yet was it the sight of Hugo Baskerville lying near her, which raised the hair upon their heads. But it was that standing over Hugo and plucking at his throat, there stood a foul thing, a great black beast shaped like a hound, yet larger than any hound that ever mortal eye has rested upon. And even as they looked, the thing tore the throat out of Hugo Baskerville, on which, as it turned its blazing eyes and dripping jaws upon them, they shrieked with fear and rode for dear life, still screaming across the moor. Such is the tale of the coming of the Hound, which is said to have plagued the family so sorely ever since. Many of the Baskerville family have been unhappy in their death, which have been sudden, bloody, and mysterious. Well, Mr. Holmes, what do you make of this remarkable document? Holmes and I were sitting in Baker Street, listening in amazement to the lurid tale that Dr. Mortimer of Grimpen Devon was reading to us. Of interest to a collector of fairy tales, Dr. Mortimer, nothing more. But I should have seen the collection earlier. Is this about the death of Sir Charles Baskerville? Well, that is precisely why I'm here, Mr. Holmes. You saw the report in the Times. You have it there, Watson, oblige me. Sir Charles Baskerville died November 29th, greatly mourned by the community to have profited by his good fortune and generous donations. Widower, died childless. I quote, there is no reason whatever to suspect foul play or to imagine that death could be from any but natural causes. Ah. Then there's evidence from Barrymore, butler of Baskerville Hall. Sir Charles Baskerville was in the habit every night before going to bed of walking down the yew alley of Baskerville Hall to smoke a cigar. The night of November the 29th, he never returned. At midnight, finding the hall door still open, I became alarmed and lighting a lantern when in search of my master. The day had been wet, and Sir Charles's footmarks were easily traced down the alley. Halfway down this walk, there was a gate which leads out onto the moor. There were indications that Sir Charles had stood for some little time here. He then proceeded down the alley, and it was at the far end of it that I found his body. Good heavens. What is it, Watson? But listen to this, Holmes. I noticed something very strange about those footprints. They altered their character from the time that he passed the moor gate. I know it sounds ridiculous, but he appeared from thence onward to have been walking upon his toe. Aha, excellent. Well, Dr. Mortimer, that article contains all the public facts. It does. Then pray let me have the private one. Within the last few months, Sir Charles's nervous system had become strained to breaking point. It was at my advice that he was about to go to London. I thought that a few months among the distractions of town would send him back a new man. You knew Sir Charles well, then? With the exception of Mr. Franklin, the magistrate of Grimpen Hall, and Mr. Stapleton, the naturalist, there are no other men of education within many miles. Very well, proceed. He had taken the legend of the hound exceedingly to heart, and had become convinced he had heard it baying, even seen its black shape cross the moor by the hall. Eventually, he was so frightened that although he would walk into his own grounds, nothing would induce him to go out upon the moor at night. And yet, by the evidence of the footprints Barrymore saw on the night he died, he did just that. I saw the spot at the moor gate where he seemed to have waited. 
I remarked the change in the shape of the prints after that point. Barrymore said at the inquest that there were no traces upon the ground around the bodies. He did not observe any, but I did. Some little distance off, but fresh and clear. Footprints of a man or a woman? Mr. Holmes, they were the footprints of a gigantic hound. I confess that these words a shudder passed through me. There was a thrill in the doctor's voice which showed that he was himself deeply moved by that which he told us. You saw this? As clearly as I see you. How was it that no one else saw it? The marks were some 20 yards from the body and no one gave them a thought. I don't suppose I should have done so had I not known this legend. Where is the wicked gate which leads on to the moor? Halfway down the alley, the house is at one end and a summer house is at the other. Which was where Sir Charles's footprints were leading. And what marks did you see by the wicket gate? All very confused. Sir Charles had evidently stood there for five or ten minutes. How do you know that? Because the ash had twice dropped from his cigar. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> this is a colleague, Watson, after our own heart. Oh, if only I had been there. Dr. Mortimer, you should have called me in before this. You have indeed much to answer for. Mr. Holmes, I only hesitated because I think the thing may actually be supernatural. Surely not. Well, if you hold these views, why have you come to consult me at all? You tell me in the same breath it is useless to investigate Sir Charles's death, yet you desire me to do just that. I did not say that I desired you to investigate his death. Then how, pray, can I assist you? By advising me as to what I should do with Sir Henry Baskerville, who arrives at Waterloo Station in exactly one hour and a quarter. Great Scott, then you found the heir. Well, on the death of Sir Charles, we inquired for this young gentleman and found that he'd been farming in America. From the accounts which have reached us, he is an excellent fellow in every way. No other claimant, I presume? None. Sir Charles, who died childless, was eldest of three brothers. This Sir Henry is the son of the middle brother. And the last? The third, Roger, the black sheep of the family. He made England too hot to hold him, fled to Central America, and died there in 76 of yellow fever. Henry is the last of the Baskervilles, and I have had a wire that he arrived at Southampton this morning. Now, Mr. Holmes, what would you advise me to do with him? In your opinion, there is a diabolical agency abroad which makes Dartmoor unsafe for a Baskerville? Indeed. And yet it cannot be denied that the prosperity of the whole poor, bleak countryside depends upon his presence. All the good work which has been done by Sir Charles will crash to the ground if there is no tenant of the hall. I recommend, sir, that you take a cab and proceed to Waterloo to meet Sir Henry Baskerville. Say nothing about this until I've made up my mind about the matter. And how long will that take? 24 hours, no more. At 10 o'clock tomorrow, Dr Mortimer, I'll be very much obliged to you if you will call upon us here and bring Sir Henry Baskerville with you. I'm obliged to you, sir. Gentlemen? Mortimer scribbled the appointment on his shirt cuff and hurried off in his strange, peering, absent-minded fashion. Holmes returned to his seat with that quiet look of inward satisfaction which meant that he had a congenial task before him. Going out, Watson. Oh, uh, right, yes, of course, uh, um, unless I can help you. No, my dear fellow, it is at the hour of action that I turn to you for aid. But this is splendid, really unique from some points of view. There will be a lad waiting at the cab rank on the corner. His name is Billy. Send him up here, would you? Yes, yes, of course. Billy! Yes, 
Mr. Holmes? To Bradley's to fetch me a pound of the strongest shag tobacco. Then to Stanford's and Charing Cross to purchase me an ordnance map of Dartmoor. Straight back, Mike. Of course, Mr. Holmes. What'd you take me for? I knew that seclusion and solitude were very necessary for my friend in those hours of intense mental concentration, during which he weighed every particle of evidence, constructed alternative theories, and balanced one against the other. And in my mind, I am traveling to Devonshire. My spirit hovers over the icons on the map and defines the locations and events of this dark tale. Baskerville Hall and the Yew Alley with its gate onto the moor where Sir Charles died. The nearby hamlet of Grimpen, where Dr Mortimer lives, and beyond it, the great Grimpen Mire. Within five miles radius, Grimpen Hall, home of Magistrate Franklin. The cottage where Stapleton, the naturalist, lives. The stone circle where Sir Hugo met his fate 200 years ago. And finally, standing sentinel, the great convict prison of Princeton. It was nearly nine o'clock when I found myself in the sitting room once more. My first impression as I opened the door was that a fire had broken out, for the room was so filled with smoke that the light of the lamp upon the table was blurred by it. As I entered, however, my fears were set at rest, for it was the acrid fumes of strong, coarse tobacco which took me by the throat and set me coughing. Through the haze, I had a vague vision of Holmes in his dressing gown, Coiled up in an armchair with his black clay pipe between his lips, several maps and rolls of paper lay around him. This, Watson, is the stage upon which tragedy has been played and upon which we may help to prevent it playing again. It must be a wild place. And a worthy setting if the devil did desire to have a hand in the affairs of men. Then you are yourself inclining to the supernatural explanation. Perhaps. But the devil's agents may be of flesh and blood, may they not... That change in the footprints. Mortimer said that the man had walked on tiptoe down that portion of the alley. Why should he do that? <laughs> Why, indeed. He was running, Watson. Running desperately, running for his life. Running until he burst his heart and fell dead upon his face. But then he was running away from the hall, away from safety. He'd lost his wits. Why else would this elderly and infirm man who had a pathological fear of the moor wait on a damp, freezing night, not in his home, but by the only access to the object of his fears? He was waiting for someone. Bravo, Watson. This thing takes shape. It becomes coherent. Might I ask you to hand me my violin? We will postpone all further thought upon this business until we've had the advantage of meeting Dr. Mortimer and Sir Henry Baskerville in the morning.
The following morning, Dr. Mortimer arrived with young Sir Henry Baskerville, a small, alert, dark-eyed man, very sturdily built with a strong, pugnacious face. Pray take a seat, Sir Henry. I believe Dr. Mortimer has appraised you of the legend behind the Baskerville curse. Indeed he has. I seem to have come into an inheritance with a vengeance. You have heard the story before. I heard of the Hound ever since I was in the nursery, though I never thought I'd taken it seriously before, until this morning. Do I understand you to say that you yourself have had some remarkable experience since you arrived in London? Uh, nothing of much importance, Mr. Holmes. Only a, a joke, as like or not. It was this letter, if you can call it a letter, which reached me just now. Hmm. Someone seems to be very deeply interested in your movements. Look at this, Watson. Somebody has glued newsprint to this paper to make a sentence. As you value your life or your reason, keep away from the moor. Only the word moor is printed in ink. Well, it seems to show that someone knows more than we do. And also that someone is not ill-disposed towards you since they warn you of danger. Or it may be that they wish for their own purposes to scare me away. Hello, hello, what's this? Well? Huh. Ah, well, I'm sure it is nothing. Has anything else out of the ordinary happened to you since you've been in London, Sir Henry? Would you call losing a boot out of the ordinary? You have lost one of your boots. I put them both outside my door last night, and there was only one this morning. The worst of it is, I only bought the pair last night in the Strand. I've never even had them on. If you've never worn them, why did you put them out to be clean? Well, they were tan boots. They'd not yet been varnished. I wish to look the part if I'm going to assume my estate. Ah, then you are determined to go to Devon? There is no devil in hell, Mr. Holmes, and there is no man upon earth who can prevent me from going to the home of my own people. And you may take that to be my final answer. Will you take the case then, Mr. Holmes? I shall. We will call upon you at your hotel at 1 p.m. As the front door closed on the baronet and the doctor, Holmes stood in the window, his eyes roaming over the street below. Aha. As I thought. What is it? They're being followed. A handsome is moving slowly behind them. The passenger appears to be the possessor of a long black beard. Good heavens. Quick, your hat and coat, Watson, before we're too late. But our quarry had vanished into the surging London traffic. On the dot of one o'clock, we presented ourselves at the Northumberland Hotel to hear the raised voice of our American visitor. Seems to me they're playing me for a sucker in this hotel. They'll find they've started into monkey with the wrong man unless they're careful. By thunder, if that chap can't find my missing boot, there'll be trouble. I thought you had already reported your missing boot. That was a new brown one. This is an old black one. Ah. What is it, Mr. Holmes? A chink of light, nothing more. Tell me, Sir Henry, what are your immediate plans? To go to Baskerville Hall. Very well. There is only one provision which I must make. You certainly must not go alone. Dr. Mortimer returns with me. But Dr. Mortimer has his practice to attend to, and his house is miles away from yours. No, Sir Henry, you must take with you someone, a trusty man who will always be by your side. <laughs> 
Is it possible that you could come yourself, Mr. Holmes? At the present instant, one of the most revered names in England is being besmirched by a master blackmailer, and only I can stop a disastrous scandal. Whom would you recommend then? If my friend Watson would undertake it, there is no man who is better worth having at your side when you're in a tight place. Dr. Watson, if you'll come down to Baskerville Hall and see me through, I'll never forget it. I will come, with pleasure. I do not know how I could employ my time better. And you will report very carefully to me, Watson. A letter every day, no matter how trivial the reports. When a crisis comes, as it will do, I will direct you how you shall act. You're sure this is murder, Holmes? Never surer. It's an ugly business, my dear fellow. An ugly, dangerous business. And the more I see of it, the less I like it. I give my word, I should be very glad to have you back safe and sound in Baker Street once more. And Sir Henry. Yes? Bear in mind, Sir Henry, one of the phrases in that queer old legend. And avoid the moor in those hours of darkness when the powers of evil are exalted. up at a small wayside station, a sweet, simple country spot. But by the station gates there stood two soldierly men in dark uniforms who leaned upon their short rifles and glanced keenly at them as they passed. The coachman, a hard-faced, gnarled little fellow, saluted Sir Henry Baskerville. Sir! And in a few minutes they were flying swiftly down the broad white road. Bronzing bracken and mottled bramble gleamed in the light of the sinking sun. The road passed over a narrow granite bridge and skirted a noisy stream which gushed swiftly down, foaming and roaring amid the grey boulders. Both road and stream wound up through a valley dense with scrub oak and fir. At every turn, Baskerville gave an exclamation of delight, looking eagerly about him and asking countless questions. To his eyes, all seemed beautiful, but to me, a tinge of melancholy lay upon the countryside. The rattle of our wheels died away as we drove through the drifts of rotting vegetation, sad gifts, as it seemed to me, for nature to throw before the carriage of the returning heir of the Baskervilles. Hello? What's this? On the summit of an outlying spur of the moor was a mounted soldier, dark and stern, his rifle poised ready over his forearm, watching the road along which they travelled. There's a convict escaped from Princeton, sir. He's been out three days now, and the warders watch every road and every station, but they've had no sight of him yet. 
The farmers about here don't like it, sir. And that's a fact. Who is he, then? It is Sheldon, the Notting Hill murderer. Dear. And my mind went back to a case so horrific that I refused to publish its details and Holmes' words in conclusion. No, Watson, he'll not face the hangman, despite the brutality of his actions, the mutilation of the corpses, or maybe because of them. He is insane. He'll rot in prison for the rest of his life. In front of them rose the huge expanse of the moor, mottled with gnarled and craggy cairns and tors. A cold wind swept down from it and set them shivering. Somewhere there on that desolate plain lurked this fiendish man, hiding in a burrow like a wild beast, his heart full of malignancy against the whole race which has cast him out. Here we are, sir. Baskerville Hall. Through the gateway, they passed into the avenue, where the wheels were again hushed amid the leaves and the old trees shot their branches in a somber tunnel over their heads. Was it here? Uh, no, Sir Henry, the, the yew alley is on the other side. A dull light shone through heavy mullioned windows and from the high chimneys which rose from the steep high-angled roof, there sprang a single black column of smoke. Welcome, Sir Henry. Welcome to Baskerville Hall. A tall man had stepped from the shadow of the porch to open the door of the wagonette. The figure of a woman was silhouetted against the yellow light of the hall. We have prepared everything for you, Sir Henry. I am Barrymore, sir, the butler. This is my wife. Please come in. Take your bags to your room, sir. We gazed round us at the high, thin windows of old stained glass, the oak panellings, the stag's heads, the coats of arms upon the walls, all dim and sombre in the subdued light of the central lamp. I don't wonder that my uncle got a little jumpy if you lived all alone in a house such as this. However, if it suits you, we will retire early tonight and perhaps things may seem a little more cheerful in the morning. I drew aside my curtains before I went to bed and looked out from my window. A half-moon broke through the rifts of racing clouds. In its cold light, I saw beyond the trees a broken fringe of rocks and the long, low curve of the melancholy moor. I closed the curtain, feeling that my last impression was in keeping with the rest. And in the very dead of the night, there came a sound to my ears, clear, resonant, and unmistakable. It was the sob of a woman, the muffled, strangling gasp of one who is torn by an uncontrollable sorrow. I sat up in bed and listened intently. The noise could not have been far away and was certainly in the house. For half an hour I waited with every nerve on the alert, but there came no other sound, save the chiming clock and the rustle of the ivy on the wall. Good morning, Dr. Watson. <laughs> it seems we were wrong about this place. 
Best night's sleep I've had in months. The fresh beauty of the following morning did indeed efface from our minds the grim and gray impression which had been left upon us last night. But I felt I should write to home straight away with my concerns about Baskerville Hall. My dear Holmes, where there is intrigue here and no mistake, Alamore swear it could not have been his wife I heard last night, and yet this morning her eyes were red and swollen. Why should he lie? Why indeed? What say you, Mycroft? In the panelled lounge of the Diogenes Club, Sherlock Holmes is deep in conversation with his elder brother. Well, it was Barrymore who first discovered the body of Sir Charles, and we had only his word for all the circumstances which led up to the old man's death. Mycroft Holmes is a senior government official and possessed, according to Holmes, of even greater powers of deduction than his own. Whose greatness is hampered only by the fact that Mycroft refuses to leave the confines of his club. Is it possible that it was Barrymore after all that I saw in the cab in Baker Street? Well then, is he the agent of others or has he some sinister design of his own? Dr. Watson! I was walking to the village of Grimpen when my thoughts were interrupted by the sound of running feet behind me and a voice which called me by name. Here on the Vore, we are homely folk and do not wait for formal introductions. You may possibly have heard my name from our mutual friend Mortimer. I am Stapleton of Merry Pitt House. The naturalist, of course. He was a small, slim, clean-shaven, prim-faced man, flaxen-haired and lean-jawed, dressed in a grey suit and wearing a straw hat. A tin box for botanical specimens hung over his shoulder and he carried a butterfly net in one of his hands. We were all rather afraid that after the sad death of Sir Charles, the new baronet might refuse to live here. It is asking a great deal of a wealthy man to come down and bury himself in a place of this kind, but I need not tell you that it makes all the difference to the countryside. Sir Henry has, I suppose, no superstitious fears in the matter? I don't think that's likely. Of course, you know the legend of the fiend dog which haunts the family. The story took a great hold upon the imagination of Sir Charles, and I have no doubt that it led to his tragic end. But how? I fancy that he really did see something of this kind upon that last night in the yew alley. Well, I have not come to any conclusion. Has Mr. Sherlock Holmes? Ah. <laughs> it is useless for us to pretend that we do not know you, Dr. Watson. May I ask if he is going to honour us with a visit himself? He cannot leave town at present. Uh, he has other cases which engage his attention. You have no such cases, Sherlock. Why do you send the good doctor into danger and not go yourself? Watson is not in danger, Mycroft. It is enough that he is my eyes and ears. Oh, come on, Sherlock. You can't fool me. There is more to this than you are admitting. I would say you are remaining here because you are unsure of something. It cannot be the case itself. It must be some element of it. it... <laughs> oh, surely it can't be. I have spent the best part of three days in the occult section of the British Museum reading room. I noticed the books I ordered up had all recently been ordered by you. You do not believe in the occult. But you do. Ah. What are you asking, Sherlock? Is the legendary hound just fable? 
You see this great plain to the north here with the queer hills breaking out of it? You notice those bright green spots scattered thickly over it? Yes. They seem more fertile than the rest. Ah, fertile indeed. That is the great Grimpen Mire. A false step yonder means death to man or beast. Good heavens. Even in dry seasons, it is a danger to cross it. But after these autumn rains, it is an awful place. And yet I can find my way to the very heart of it and return alive. A long, low moan, indescribably sad, swept over the moor. It filled the whole air. And yet it was impossible to say whence it came. From a dull murmur, it swelled into a deep roar and then sank back into a melancholy, throbbing murmur once again. Hello? What is that? The peasants say it is the hound of the Baskervilles calling for its prey. I heard it once or twice before, but never quite so loud. Nothing stirred over the vast expanse save a pair of ravens which croaked loudly from a tor behind them. When you told me of the case, I took the liberty of inquiring amongst colleagues, and the hound is part of the wild hunt. It is the devil's creature. It does exist. You are an educated man, Stapleton. I mean, you don't believe such nonsense as that. Oh, no? Look at the hillside yonder. What do you make of those? The whole steep slope was covered with grey circular rings of stone. A score of them, at least. They are the homes of our worthy ancestors. Prehistoric man lived thickly on the moor. He grazed his cattle on these slopes, and he learned to dig for tin when the bronze sword superseded the stone axe. My word. And he worshipped the old gods. Who knows what ancient rites he enacted on those very slopes. Much as it goes against my nature, I believe this is no ordinary dog, Mycroft. Charles Baskerville was convinced of it. Perhaps a demon does exist upon the moor. And perhaps one person who can conjure it up and control it. You will need protection, which is why I've come to you. Against my better judgment. I cannot help you if you refuse to believe in the power of the defences my uh, friends can provide for you. I presume nothing. I trust you implicitly, brother mine. And though they may be able to protect you, they cannot protect your companions. That will suffice for the time being. Then consider it done. Come through to the Senate room. Oh, excuse me an instant. It is surely Cyclopides. A small fly or moth had fluttered across our path. And in an instant, Stapleton was rushing with extraordinary energy and speed in pursuit of it. The creature flew straight for the great mire, but Stapleton never paused for an instant, bounding from tuft to tuft behind it, his green net waving in the air. I was standing watching his pursuit with a mixture of admiration for his extraordinary activity and fear lest he should lose his footing in the treacherous mire. When I heard the sound of steps, and turning round, found a woman near me upon the path. Go back. 
go straight back to London instantly. Uh, why should I go back? I cannot explain. But for God's sake, do what I ask you. Go back and never set foot upon the moor again. But I have only just come. Can you not tell when a warning is for your own good? Hush, my brother is coming. Not a word of what I have said. We are very rich in orchids on the moor, though, of course, you are rather late to see the beauties of the place. Hello, Beryl. Hello, Jack. You were very hot. Yes, I was casing a Cyclopides. What a pity that I should have missed him. Ah, you have introduced yourselves, I see. Yes. I was telling Sir Henry that it was rather late for him to see the true beauties of the moor. Why, who do you think this is? Well, I... Sir Henry Baskerville, of course. Uh, no, 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 uh, only a humble commoner. Um, but I am his friend. My name is Dr. Watson. Oh, I'm sorry. We've been talking at cross-purposes. <laughs> My dear Holmes, three days have passed without incident. I must say, I am enjoying my time here. Uh, Miss Stapleton is a very fascinating and beautiful woman. There is something tropical and exotic about her which forms a singular contrast to her cool and unemotional brother. Steady on, Watson. The fact is that our friend, the Baronet, begins to display a considerable interest in our fair neighbour. From the first moment that he saw her, he appeared to be strongly attracted by her and... I am much mistaken if the feeling was not mutual. That is indeed a complication. Billy? Sir? There should be another letter awaiting me at the post office. Fetch it, would you? Yes, Mr. Holmes. My dear Holmes, well, I can't deny that much has now changed since my arrival here. I have more than once caught a look of the strongest disapprobation on Stapleton's face when Sir Henry has been paying some attention to his sister. I am certain that he does not wish their intimacy to ripen into love, and I have several times observed that he has taken pains to prevent them from being tete-a-tete. -tete. As I say, a complication. But I must tell you of the events of last night. It was about two o'clock in the morning when I was roused from sleep. Watson! Watson! Oh, Sandra, uh, what is it? Barrymore. I heard his footsteps pass my door a moment ago. He's at the end of the corridor with a lit candle. The west corner? By Jove, that is the window that looks directly out onto the moor. Wait, I'm coming with you. Quiet as you can. At last they reached the door and peeped through. There was Barrymore, crouching at the window, candle in hand, his white, intent face pressed against the pane. What are you doing here, Barrymore? Oh, uh, uh, it was the window, sir. I, uh, I go round at night to see that they are fastened on the second floor. I was doing no harm, sir. Why are you holding a candle to the window? Don't ask me, Henry. I give you my word, sir, that it is not my secret. 
And though I cannot tell it, he was signaling, let's see if there's an answer. Ah, look. A tiny pinpoint of yellow light suddenly transfixed the dark veil and glowed steadily in the center of the black square framed by the window. Come, speak up. Who is your confederate out yonder? What is this conspiracy? It's my business and not yours. I will not tell. Then you will leave my employment right away. Very good, sir. If I must, I must. Oh, John, have I brought you to this? Mrs. Barrymore, paler and more horror-struck than her husband, was standing at the door. We have to go, Eliza. This is the end of it. It's my doing, Sir Henry. All mine. He's done nothing except for my sake and because I asked him. Speak out, then. What does this mean? My unhappy brother is starving on the moor. We cannot let him perish at our very gates. The light is a signal to him that food is ready for him. And his light out yonder is to show the spot to which to bring it. Then your brother is... Selden. The escaped convict, sir. That's the truth, sir. If there was a plot, it was not against you. The devil entered into him. He broke my mother's heart and dragged our name in the dirt. But to me, sir... It was always a little curly-headed boy that I had nursed and played with as an elder sister would. That was why he broke prison, sir. He knew that Eliza was here and that we could not refuse to help him. Every night we put a light in the window. And if there's an answer, my husband takes out some bread and meat and clothes to him. What say you, Watson? I confess, I pity that poor creature out on the moor. Indeed, and... I cannot blame you for standing by your own wife, Barrymore. But go to your room, you two, and we shall take this further in the morning. Very well, sir. Thank you, sir. The light still glows. How far? Not even a mile, I would guess. That is near the Stapleton's cottage. Great heavens. We must take that man, Watson. He's dangerous. They dressed and hurried through the dark shrubbery amid the dull moaning of the autumn wind and the rustling of the falling leaves and out onto the moor. The night air was heavy with the smell of damp and decay. Now and again the moon peeped out for an instant, but clouds were driving over the face of the sky and a thin rain began to fall. The light still burned steadily in front. I say, Watson, what would Holmes say to this? How about that? hour of darkness in which the power of evil is exalted. It came with the wind through the silence of the night, a long, deep mutter, then a rising howl, and then the sad moan in which it died away. Again and again it sounded, the whole air throbbing with it, strident, wild, and menacing. My God, what's that, Watson? I... I don't know. It's the Hound, isn't it? It's the Hound of the Baskervilles. Look! Look by the light! Dear God! Over the rocks, in the crevice of which the candle burned, 
and was thrust out an evil yellow face, a terrible animal face, all seamed and scorned. Foul with mire, with a bristling beard and hung with matted hair. It might have been one of the prehistoric creatures who dwelt on these hillsides. After him, Watson! Stand, Selden. I am armed. No! With a cry, the convict darted over the rise and down into the darkness beyond. We rushed over the brow of the hill, and there was our man running with great speed down the other side, springing over the stones in his way like a mountain goat. We'll never catch him! We were turning to go home, abandoning the hopeless chase. The moon was low upon the right, and the jagged pinnacle of a granite tor stood up against the lower curve of its silver disk. There, outlined as black as an ebony statue on that shining background, I saw the figure of a man upon the tor. Do not think it was a delusion, Holmes. I assure you that I have never seen in my life anything more clearly. The figure was that of a tall, thin man. He stood with his legs a little separated, his arms folded, his head bowed, as if he were brooding over that enormous wilderness of peat and granite which lay before him. He might have been the very spirit of that terrible place. With a cry of surprise, I pointed him out to the baronet, but in the instant during which I turned to grasp his arm, the man was gone. I'm no coward, Watson, but I will not stay another minute in this accursed moor tonight. There is danger here, Holmes. I fear greatly for Sir Henry. Ever-present danger, which is the more terrible because I am unable to define it. Bravo, Watson. You are a good and faithful chronicler. In the morning, Barrymore was adamant that he could get Selden out of the country within days if we would just allow it. Very well. Give the man what he needs. I guess we're aiding and abetting a felony, Watson. Well, after what we've heard, I don't feel as if we could give the man up. So there is an end of it. You've been so kind to us, sir, that I should like to do the best I can for you in return. I've told nobody about this. It's about... Poor Sir Charles's death. You know how he died? No, sir. But I know why he was at the gate at that hour. It was to meet a woman. To meet a woman? Yes, sir. And the woman's name? I don't know it, sir. But only a few weeks ago, I was cleaning out Sir Charles's study. It had never been touched since his death and found the ashes of a burned letter in the back of the grate. One little slip, the end of a page hung together, and the writing could still be read. What did it say? Please, as you are a gentleman, burn this letter and be at the gate by 10 o'clock. I cannot understand, Barrymore, how you came to conceal this important information. I thought no good could come of it, sir. To write this up couldn't help our poor master. I went at once to my room 
and drew up my report of the morning's conversation for Holmes. By God, I wish that he were here. All day today, the rain poured down, rustling on the ivy and dripping from the eaves. I thought of the convict out upon the bleak, cold, shelterless moor. And then I thought of that other one, the figure against the moon, maybe also the face we saw in the cab. I put on my waterproof and I walked far upon the sodden moor, full of dark imaginings, the rain beating upon my face and the wind whistling about my ears. God help those who wander into the great mire now, for even the firm uplands are becoming a morass. Hey there! You're Watson, I'm guessing. Get in here out of the rain! I was passing Grimpen Hall, the home of Magistrate Franklin. So where's the great Sherlock Holmes? Oh, in London, working on another case. Pity, for you could tell him I've solved this case for him. What case? The convict on the moor. That is why you're here, is it not? You don't mean that you know where he is? No, but I've seen with my own eyes the messenger who takes him his food. You'll be surprised to hear that it's a child. I see him every day through my telescope upon the roof. He passes along the same path at the same hour, and to whom should he be going except to the convict? Well, I suppose... Well, I've seen the boy again and again with his bundle every day, sometimes twice a day. But wait, wait. There. There. There's something moving upon that hillside. There he was, sure enough. A small urchin with a little bundle upon his shoulder, toiling slowly up the hill. Well, am I right? Certainly there is a boy who seems to have some secret errand. I kept the road as long as Franklin's eye was on me, and then I struck off across the moor and made for the stony hill over which the boy had disappeared. Over the wide expanse, there was no sound and no movement. One great grey bird, a gull or curlew, soared aloft in the blue heaven. He and I seemed to be the only living things between the huge arch of the sky and the desert beneath it. The barren scene, the sense of loneliness, and the mystery and urgency of my task all struck a chill into my heart. Down in a cleft of the hills, 
There's a circle of the old stone huts, and in the middle of them, there was one which retained sufficient roof to act as a screen against the weather. I closed my hand upon the butt of my revolver and walked swiftly to the door. I looked in. The place was empty. In the middle of the hut, a flat stone served as the purpose of a table, and upon this stood a small cloth bundle. And my heart leaped to see that beneath it there lay a sheet of paper with writing upon it. I raised it, and this is what I read, roughly scrawled in pencil. Dr. Watson has visited the Stapletons. It was I then, not Sir Henry, who was being dogged by this secret man. He had not followed me himself, but he had set an agent, the boy perhaps, upon my track, and this was his report. Far away came the sharp clink of a boot striking upon a stone, then another, and yet another, coming nearer and nearer. I shrank back into the darkest corner and cocked the pistol in my pocket, determined not to be seen until I had an opportunity of seeing something of the stranger. There was a long pause which showed me that he had stopped. Then once more the footsteps approached and a shadow fell across the opening of the hut. It's a lovely evening, my dear Watson, but I really think you'd be more comfortable outside than in. Holmes! Come out and please be careful with the revolver. <laughs> I never was more glad to see anyone in my life. Or more astonished, eh? Uh, well, I must confess to it. Uh, the surprise was not all on one side, I assure you. I had no idea that you had found my occasional retreat, still less that you were inside it until I was within 20 paces of the door. My footprint, I presume. Now, Watson, I fear I could not undertake to recognize your footprint amid all the footprints of the world. If you seriously desire to deceive me, you must change your tobacconist. When I see the stub of a cigarette marked Bradley, Oxford Street, I know that my friend Watson is in the neighborhood. <laughs> Good heavens. But how did you localize me? You saw me perhaps on the night of the convict hunt when I was so imprudent as to allow the moon uh, to yes. rise behind me. Yes, 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 I saw you then. Uh, but today, your boy has been observed, and that gave me a guide where to look. Ah, Magistrate Franklin de Brimpen Hall. Aha! Billy has brought up some supplies. What's this paper? So you have been to the Stapletons, have you? Uh, indeed. Well done. Our researchers have evidently been running on parallel lines. Billy has been watching over you the whole time you've been here. But I thought you were in Baker Street working out that case of blackmailing. That was what I wished you to think. Then you use me, and yet do not trust me. I think that I have deserved better at your hands, Holmes. Have all my reports been wasted? Here are your reports, my dear fellow, and very well thumbed, I assure you. I made excellent arrangements, and young Billy saw to it they were only delayed one day upon their way. Well, then... My dear friend, you have been invaluable to me in this, as in many other cases. In truth, it was partly for your own sake that I did it. It was my appreciation of the danger which you ran which led me to come down and examine the matter for myself. Otherwise, my presence would have warned our very formidable opponent to be on his guard. And who is that opponent? I think you must know by now. The sun had set, and dusk was settling over the moor. The air turned chill, and an icy wind began to moan about the ancient structure. Why, your dinner companion. Stapleton! And unless I am much mistaken, his wife, 
his wife. The lady we know as Miss Stapleton is in reality his wife. Good heavens, Holmes, are you sure of what you say? You remember the mysterious note left for Sir Henry in London? I smelt a woman's perfume on the paper. I believe Mrs. Stapleton may have unwittingly been an accessory to Sir Charles's death and seeks to make amends. But how could Stapleton have permitted Sir Henry to fall in love with her? He took particular care that she did not make love to her, as you have yourself observed, but he foresaw that she would be much more useful to him in the character of a free woman. I suspect he made her write the note that Barrymore found. It is he, then, who is our enemy. It is he who dogged us in London. So I read the riddle. And the warning, it must have come from her. Exactly. But how do you know that the woman is his wife? Mycroft. Mycroft has been our third confederate in this quest. Stapleton told you he was once a schoolmaster in the north of England. A little investigation showed me that a school there had come to grief under atrocious circumstances. And the man who had owned it, who was devoted to entomology, had disappeared with his wife. The descriptions matched. But what is the meaning of it all? What is the after? It is murder, Watson. Refined, cold-blooded, deliberate murder. My nets are closing upon him, even as his are upon Sir Henry. But with your help, he is already almost at my mercy. My God, what was that? The cry had pealed out from somewhere far off on the shadowy plain. Now it burst upon their ears, nearer, louder, more urgent than before. Where is it, Watson? Oh, there. Oh, no, there. The hound. Come, Watson, come. Great heavens, if we are too late. They were running swiftly over the moor, but now from somewhere among the broken ground immediately in front, there came... He has beaten us, Watson. We are too late. A ridge of rocks ended in a sheer cliff which overlooked a stone-strewn slope. On its jagged face was spread eagled some dark, irregular object. No, no, surely not. It was a prostrate man face downward upon the ground. The head doubled under him at a horrible angle, the shoulders rounded, the body hunched together as if in the act of throwing a somersault. Dear God. The gleam of the match which he struck shone upon his clotted fingers and upon the ghastly pool which widened slowly from the crushed skull of the victim. Sir Henry. The tweed suit. The very one he wore that first morning in Baker Street. The baronet's body was plunged again into darkness as the match died. In order to have my case well-rounded and complete, I have thrown away the life of my client. It's the greatest blow which has befallen me in my career. Stapleton, where is he? He shall answer for this deed. We still have no case. We have to prove the connection between the beast and the man. We must send for help, Holmes. We cannot carry him all the way up to the hill. Or... <laughs> Good heavens, are you mad? A beard! Look, this man has a beard. A beard? It is not the baronet, it is... Why, it is my neighbour, the convict. It is indeed the same face I saw. Selden, the murderer. Sir Henry gave Mrs. Barrymore some of his clothes in order to help her brother. Then the clothes have been the poor devil's death. 
it is clear enough that the hound has been laid on from some article of Sir Henry's. The boot which was abstracted in the hotel, in all probability, and so ran this man down. Why, Dr. Watson, that's not you, is it? Staple told a word, Watson, or our plans crumbled to the ground. You are the last man that I should have expected to see out on the moor at this time of night. But dear me, what's this? Somebody hurt? He bends over the body, and the cigar falls from his fingers. Who is this? It is Selden, the prisoner who has escaped from Princeton. Dear me, what a very shocking affair. What do you make of it, Mr. Holmes? You are very quick at identification. We have been expecting you in these parts since Dr. Watson came down. You are in time to witness a tragedy. Albeit, I dare say the devil deserved it. Oh, I don't know. One cannot always have the success for which one hopes. An investigator needs facts, not legends. This has not been a satisfactory case. I'm sorry to hear it. Sheldon's body was carried back to the hall, and Stapleton left with a cheery wave. Why should we not arrest him at once and prove nothing against him? There's the devilish cunning of the man. If he were acting through a human agent, we could get some evidence. But even if we to drag this great dog into the light of day would not help us in putting a rope around the neck of its master. Surely we must have a case. Not a shadow of one, my dear fellow, only surmise and conjecture. We should be laughed out of court if we came with such a story and with such evidence. Sir Henry Baskerville, waiting at the hall, was as surprised as any to see Sherlock Holmes striding towards him. My dear Holmes! Well met, Sir Henry. Have you made anything out of this tangle? I don't know that Watson and I are much wiser since we came down. It has been an exceedingly difficult and most complicated business. There are several points from which we still want light, but it is coming, all the same. I haven't slept since we heard that hound on the moor, so... I can swear that it is not all empty superstition. If you can muzzle that one and put him on a chain, I'll be ready to swear you are the greatest detective of all time. I think I can muzzle and chain him, if you will give me your help. Whatever you tell me to do, I'll do. Very good. And I will ask you to do it blindly without always asking the reason. Just as you like. Good heavens. What is it, Holmes? Sir Henry, these really are a very fine series of portraits. This cavalier here, the one with the black velvet and the lace. Yeah, that is the cause of all the mischief. The wicked Sir Hugo, who was first hunted down by the Hound of the Baskervilles, we're not likely to forget him. But I must go and change for dinner, if you'll excuse me. Watson, do you see anything there? Is it like anyone you know? There is something of Sir Henry about the jaw. Just a suggestion, perhaps. Wait an instant. Let's cover the hat and the beard. Good heavens, Stapleton. Yes. It's an interesting instance of a throwback which appears to be both physical and spiritual. A study of family portraits is enough to convert a man to the doctrine of reincarnation. Stapleton is a Baskerville. That is evident. With designs upon the succession. Exactly. We have him, Watson. We have him. 
I dare swear that before tomorrow night, he will be fluttering in our net as helpless as one of his own butterflies. I was up betimes in the morning, but Holmes was afoot earlier still, for I saw him from the window as I dressed, coming up the drive. Good morning, Mr. Holmes. You look like a general planning a battle with his chief of the staff. That is the exact situation, Sir Henry. Watson has been asking for orders. So do I. Very good. You are engaged, as I understand, to dine with our friends the Stapletons tonight. Well, I hope that you will come also. Ah, I fear that Watson and I must go to London. Oh, I'd hoped that you were going to see me through this business. The hall and the moor are not very pleasant places to be alone. My dear fellow, you must trust me implicitly and do exactly as I tell you. Very well. I wish you to drive to Meripet House for your dinner engagement tonight. Then send back your trap, however, and let the Stapletons know that you intend to walk home. Across the moor? That is the very thing that you've often cautioned me not to do. This time you may do it with safety. If I had not every confidence in your nerve and courage, I would not suggest it, but it's essential that you do it. Then of course I will. And as you value your life, do not go across the moor in any direction save along the straight path which leads from Meripit House to the Grimpen Road and is your natural way home. As darkness fell, Holmes and Watson were concealed on the bluff overlooking Stapleton's house. I see Stapleton and Sir Henry, but no sign of Stapleton's wife. Across the great Grimpen Mire there hung a dense white fog. It was drifting slowly in their direction, low but thick and well-defined. The moon shone on it, and it looked like a great shimmering ice field with the heads of the distant tors as rocks borne upon its surface. It's moving towards us, Watson. Is that serious? Only the one thing upon Earth that could disarrange my plans. It's already ten o'clock. Our success and even Sir Henry's life may depend upon his coming out before the fog is over the path. As the fog bank flowed onward, they fell back before it until they were half a mile from the house. And still that dense white sea, with the moon silvering its upper edge, swept slowly and inexorably on. Going too far. We dare not take the chance of his being overtaken before he can reach us. At all costs, we must hold our ground where we are. A sound of quick steps broke the silence of the moor. I hear him. Wait, there's something else. Pistols ready, Watson. Look out, it's coming. There was a thin, crisp, continuous patter from somewhere in the heart of that crawling fog bank. The cloud was within 50 yards of where they lay, uncertain what horror was about to break from the heart of it. I was at Holmes's elbow, and I glanced for an instant at his face. It was pale and exultant, 
his eyes shining brightly in the moonlight. But suddenly they started forward in a rigid, fixed stare, and his lips parted in amazement. My God! What the devil is that? A hound it was, an enormous, cold, black hound, but not such a hound as mortal eyes have ever seen. Fire burst from its open mouth. Its eyes glowed with a smouldering glare. Its muzzle and hackles and dewlap were outlined in flickering flame. Never in the delirious dream of a disordered brain could anything more savage, more appalling, more hellish be conceived than that dark form and savage face which broke upon them out of the wall of fog. With long bounds, the huge black creature was leaping down the track, following hard upon the footsteps of Sir Henry. Fire! We hit him. If he's vulnerable, he's mortal. If we can wound him, we can kill him. Oh, my God! No! No! Quickly, Watson! The thing has caught Sir Henry. I was in time to see the beast spring upon its victim, hurl him to the ground, and worry at his... Oh, throat. no, you don't! With a last howl of agony and a vicious snap in the air, it rolled upon its back, four feet pouring furiously, and then fell limp upon its side. Sir Henry! Watson, a brandy flask. No sign of a wound, Holmes. His eyes are open. Thank God. My God! What in the heaven's name was it? It's dead. Whatever it is, we have laid the family ghost once and forever. Ghastly thing. Part bloodhound, part mastiff it was. Gaunt, savage, and as large as a lioness. Even now, in the stillness of death, the huge jaws seem to be dripping with a bluish flame, and the small, deep-set, cruel eyes were ringed with fire. Bosphorus, we owe you a deep apology, Sir Henry, for having exposed you to this fright. I was prepared for a hound, but not for a creature such as this. You have saved my life. Having first endangered it. If you will wait here, Sir Henry. Come, Watson. We have our case, and now we want only our man, if those shots haven't warned him off. The mayor of House, I fear for Stapleton's wife. I cannot believe she was party to this. Indeed. Stapleton used her to lure Sir Charles to the U Alley the night of his death. She's been trying to warn Sir Henry ever since. Quickly. As they arrived, the front door was open, but there was no light, save in the dining room. Someone in there. I can hear someone. A figure was tied against a wooden beam, so swathed and muffled in the sheets which had been used to secure it, that one could not for the moment tell whether it was that of a man or a woman. One towel passed round the throat and was secured at the back of the pillar, and over it two dark eyes, eyes full of grief and shame and a dreadful questioning, stared back. In a minute, we had torn off the gag, unswathed the bonds, and Mrs. Stapleton sank upon the floor in front of us. As her beautiful head fell upon her chest, I saw the clear red wheel of a whiplash across her neck. Is he safe? Has he escaped? He cannot escape us, madam. No, no. I did not be my husband. Sir Henry, is he safe? Yes. And the hound? It is dead. 
Thank God. See how the villain has treated me. We saw with horror that her arms were all mottled with bruises. Tell us then where we shall find him. If you have ever aided him in evil, help us now and so atone. There is but one place where he can have fled. There is an old tin mine on an island in the heart of the mire where he kept his hound and made preparations so that he might have a refuge. That is where he would fly. The fog bank lay like white wool against the window. Holmes held the lamp towards it. See, no one could find his way into the Grimpen mire tonight. He may find his way in, but never out. How can he see the guiding wands tonight? And deep within the rank reeds, Stapleton staggers on, the mire's tenacious grip plucking at his heels as he walks. Lush, slimy water plants send an odour of decay and a heavy miasmic vapour onto his face. When suddenly... Good God, Holmes, do you hear that? Bycroft, you are right. The one element of the mystery is still missing. But the hound is dead. The beast that Stapleton set upon Sir Henry may be dead, but that is not its cry. Stapleton hears the deep roar and knows for whom it is intended. No! No! You cannot exist! The patter of paws, the sudden burst of smoke and flame, and rearing up behind him, a demonic horror from the pit, blowing smoking with hellfire! The beast that he spits him plunged deep and forever into the mire's obscene depths. But, but what does it mean, Holmes? Never yet have we helped to hunt down a more dangerous man than he was lying yonder. But as Mycroft told me, we could not be the arbiters of his fate. Why ever not? Because, my dear fellow, Stapleton is a Baskerville. And his fate was always in more vengeful hands than ours. We remained in Grimpen to witness Sir Henry's recovery from his shocking encounter and his engagement to his beloved Beryl widow of the hideous Stapleton. Holmes was pitched headlong into the case of the Norwood Builder, and Dartmoor seemed very far away. Yet, when the winter winds howl about our cosy home in Baker Street, and the rain dashes against the windows, we both look up from our work with but one thought. Your own mantra, Holmes. When you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. There are more things in heaven and earth, Watson, that are dreamt of in our philosophy. Your violin, Holmes. If you would, my dear fellow. Thank you.
That was the third and final part of The Hound of the Bastardies, text and music by me, Neil Brand, and orchestrated by Timothy Brock, who conducted the BBC Symphony Orchestra in this world premiere performance at the Barbican Hall London last month, and the orchestra's leader, Stephen Bryant, was standing in for Sherlock on the violin. The voices you heard were Mark Gatiss as Sherlock Holmes, Sanjeev Bhaskar as Dr Watson, Ewan Bailey as Barrymore and Mycroft, Claire Corbett as Mrs Barrymore, Beryl Stapleton and Billy, Sam Dale as Dr Mortimer and Franklin, Ryan Early as Henry Baskerville, and Carl Prekop as Stapleton and Selden, while the whole cast narrated throughout. The director was David Hunter, for BBC Radio 3 the sound engineer was Chris Rouse and the producer was Anne Mackay. The Hound of the Baskervilles was a BBC co-commission with the Barbican Centre and Saffron Hall. I hope you've enjoyed it. Don't have nightmares. That was Neil Brand, and that performance was recorded for BBC Television and will be screened later in the year. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.